Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of. One that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco De Leon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Amina Altai. A friend of mine was recently talking about two approaches in dealing with anxiety. The first is to do something like take a walk. The second approach is to take the time to understand what may be the root cause of your anxiety and to try to heal that issue at its source. While doing that kind of work requires a much bigger investment than going for a walk, it certainly has a higher return in the long run. In today's episode, I chat with Amina Altai, a holistic business and career coach. I specifically ask Amina to help me get to the root of some of my anxiety, my attachment to work and productivity. I hope this episode inspires you to tackle some of your weird money issues at the root. Please enjoy our conversation. Amina, it is a true delight, a true pleasure for you to be here on the Weird Finance Podcast. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I am delighted. I love that. I think people don't, one, use that word enough, and I think, two, maybe not optimize enough for it. So I'm glad to have you here, a professional coach, to talk to us about all the ways that we can maximize for our own potential without sacrificing the goddamn delight. So let's jump right into it. I would love to hear from you in your own words about how exactly you became the coach that is sitting before me today. 
I became a coach because coaching saved my life. And I know that sounds very dramatic, but I will tell you the whole story. So I am half Iraqi, half Welsh, you know, immigrant family, and grew up in this family that was very much about my doing versus my being. And I just learned very early on that if I work really hard and do all the things, life will be great. That was sort of the story. And I carried that into my work. So it was like, okay, very dedicated student. Then it came time to enter the workforce and I was boundaryless, deeply codependent, very much overworking. And seven years in, I burned out and I developed two autoimmune diseases. And the way that it happened was very dramatic. Like I started to feel sick and I'd been to about seven different doctors. And then finally one doctor calls me and is like, yeah, okay, we have a problem. And I was on my way to work and she says if you don't go to the hospital now, instead of going to work, you're days away from multiple organ failure. I had basically was working myself into an early grave. Wow. And the wild thing about that time and that day is I actually went to work. I was like, oh, like I know I feel sick, but I don't know if I fully believe what she's saying. And so I went to work. And then later that day, I was like, huh, maybe I'm not, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe (laughs) I should actually look at this. And that, I call that my stop moment because it was the moment that I really had to like stop doing what I was doing because it wasn't working. It was actually killing me. And I had but two choices. Do I keep going the way that I'm going? Probably exit the plan a little early or do I choose another way? And obviously I chose another way. At the time I lived with one of my best friends and someone that she'd worked with had gone to life coaching and she had loosely told me about this. And after my diagnosis, I was like, something about this just is drawing me in. I feel like I need to go there. And I went to this life coaching program and it legit changed my life. And it just had me see all of my stuff, like all of my traits, all of my baggage. It wasn't yet a a conversation of systemic oppression, which I got to later, but it really did have me look at my own stuff and my side of the street, which I really needed to do at that time. And so that's how I became a coach because it literally changed my life. And there was many sort of stops and careers in between, but... That's essentially how I got here. What kind of work were you doing when you were working yourself to death, basically? I I was not curing cancer. I was working in marketing and brand management. (laughs) But at the time, I really thought it was very big, important work. And after that moment, I went on to create a corporate wellness company because I thought, oh, I could help people inside of organizations that maybe had similar patterns to me. And I did that for a while, but it didn't feel fully true to me. So about nine years ago, I sat down to design my own work that sits the intersection of mindset, career and business coaching, and well-being, because I believe we need all three pieces to really thrive. So forgive me if this is too personal, but where are you at now on your autoimmune journey? Have you been able to heal yourself or is it something you're still struggling with on a regular basis? Yeah, heal yourself is such an interesting like question and phrase. I don't know the answer to that, but so I have two autoimmune diseases. One of them is in remission. So I no longer have antibodies, which is, you know, my doctor tells me it's a miracle. So that's awesome. One of the things I do notice about myself is like when I'm out of integrity or like working too much, I do take a hit in my body. So it's just a place I have to be conscious of. Wow. Yeah, that's, I have some friends who have autoimmune diseases and I've always wondered, you know, about the interconnectedness of everything because those particular individuals in my life are the ones who are seem to be very, very stressed, oftentimes about work and things outside of their control. So, I mean, it's a very fine line to to weave, especially, I mean, in this space, I feel this way about the finance space where it's like, how do you tread and help people when there's two things at play, right? Things within your control, things outside of your control and like, what's the balance? 
Yeah. And, you know, to those people that might be listening that do have chronic illness, it's so complex and heavily matrixed, right? There's a genetic component. There's an environmental component. There's the trauma component. And so I never want anyone to listen to my story and be like, oh, it's just because I worked so much that I got sick because it is really complex. But that our mindset and how we show up in the world does play a role for sure. So what are the kind of folks that you help? Are they ones suffering from autoimmune diseases as well? Or do you work with healthy people who are just trying to make a change? Yeah, all of the above. So how I think about and talk about the people that I work with is they are the people that, similar to me, sort of sprinted to the top of the ladder in their respective fields, did whatever it took to get there at lightning fast speed. And then they look around and they're like, this isn't it. This is not it at all. And maybe they took a, a health hit like I did. Maybe it impacted their mental health and well-being in some way. But they have this profound realization that they lived by the shoulds and the must-haves and that this is not what they really want for themselves. And so then the work that we do is, well, who are you really on the inside? And what are the choices that you want to make? And how do you want to be in service to the world? I love that. Yeah. You know, I am a big fan of coaches, even though there are some, you know, people out there who my favorite meme in the coaching world is the coach's coach, right? So you pay for a program and you hire a coach and then they just coach you on how to coach more people. But I am a believer, right? You find the right person with, you know, the right background, the right approach, the right tools. They can really help you, I guess, perform in life at the level that you want to be performing at. So uh, I am a little, you know, I, I look at the coaching industry with a healthy amount of skepticism. So I often think the best way to highlight a coach's work is to, you know, kind of kick the tires and and to tell you all of the crap that I'm dealing with these days and to see if maybe you can help me unpack, reframe, talk through, sort through, give me some tools. How's that sound to you? Oh, heck yeah. And <laughs> I know we talked about this before we hit record, but I feel the same way that you do. I think that coaching is wonderful and when done in a really integrous way can change lives. But like in any field, there are people that are doing it really beautifully and then there are people that aren't. And so my advice to anyone looking for a coach too is like, just do your research and make sure that they do feel like people that are showing up in a way that is full, filled with integrity. And the great way is, is to witness them coach somebody else. So totally down for that. All right. So something that has really been a theme over the last few years, but is really coming to a head recently is this, my relationship to productivity. Mm -hmm. Now, a little bit of background. I am, have never been really the ambitious type, always the back of the class. And I always invested in my relationships above all things. So I think what I learned quickly was that to get a B is not that much work. To get an A is a tremendous amount of work and I would with with like a marginal benefit to me. So I was always like a solid B student with a robust social life. And it wasn't until I got older, I started my own company that I was like, hmm, let's apply ourselves in a way that we haven't. And so I did. And then what happens? I mean, you've been through this before. The outside world responds positively, right? They pat you on the head and they're like, you know, good for all, you know, you, you did a good job. And so I, one, think I kind of got on that like hedonic treadmill, like getting people replying to my newsletter saying, you're awesome, right? Getting a book deal was a direct reflection of me showing up and sitting at the keyboard at five o'clock in the morning writing blog posts. Uh, couple that with the fact that I was a really bad employee. Like I almost got fired several times. 
And one of the times was because I was the champion of flexible work, like before COVID. I was always asking for a work from home day. And my boss was like, you got to stop. And also, I don't think this is, you got to get out of here, kid. Like you're, you're losing it, right? And one of the things I recognized as I was kind of playing all this out was that like I call myself lazy all the time. And like set the stage, I have two jobs, right? I'm running this podcast. I run a bookkeeping agency. I'm constantly reading, constantly consuming. And so ultimately, I feel shitty when I'm not productive. And I feel Mm -hmm. shitty about working less. And I really have to catch myself in these patterns when I'm like out and the sun is shining on my face and I'm taking that break. And I have to, I have to really try to stop that patterning of like, if you're not productive, you're a terrible person. So I just, just avalanched on you. Please tell me that you also struggle with this. And and what are the, some of the things that, that I can do to help reframe and, you know, stop, get myself out of this pattern? Yeah. So many of us feel that way. And like you, I'm I'm also the champion of flexible work. And I believe that we all have different brains and bodies and should get to design our work around our brain and body versus this universal standard of how we think work should be, which PS was really designed around males hormones. And so it doesn't work for every work does not work for most people. Work is broken. And so we need these flexible ways of doing things. So the story that you're telling yourself is if you're not productive, you're a terrible person is Is that the the story? I'm a garbage can. Okay. Do you believe that's true? I mean, in the moment, in the moment, it feels, in the moment, it feels true. In the moment, there's a big word should of like, I should be doing this. But when I take, when I allow myself to kind of take a moment, of course, that's not true, especially with creativity. There's so much not working that happens with creativity. I know you're in the middle of writing a book right now. There's so much not writing the book that writes the book. And so I think it's easy to lose sight of that. Powerful. So anytime that we are in the language of should, we're usually in somebody else's belief system. So whose belief system is it that if you're not productive, you're a garbage person? Like all of American society. Great. Great. Yeah. That's like capitalism. That's patriarchy. Yes. (laughs) Okay. American society. So it's not yours. And how do you feel about that belief system? Do you want to keep it? You know what? It 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 has served some great means to ends, right? It has served a lot of good outcomes, but I would like a gentler way to be with work. And with with work comes a whole lot of other complications, mm-hmm. like your relationship to to earning and money and also being public with your work, I feel like also that complicates things because there's now this like weird social contract where I get to make things that I find interesting and helpful for others and they get to consume it. So I don't think I answered your question. I'm sorry. No, it's perfect. (laughs) I actually want to go in the direction of fear. So if you are less productive, if you're not productive at all, what do you fear will happen? I will become completely irrelevant or opportunities will not come my way. Clients won't knock on the door. And then? My career will be a tomato that just rots on the vine. Potential completely wasted. Wow, this is getting flowery and dramatic. But this is where everybody goes. Literally, this is what our brain does. We believe that if we are not in constant productivity mode, then we're going to lose the clients. We're going to become irrelevant. And then our brain goes to the place of, and I will die. Right. Literally, that's, that's literally what our brains think. 
So then we have this equation that we've set up of like, okay, I need to stay in perpetual motion in order to survive, in order to live. If I'm not in perpetual motion, I will die. Hmm. But there's about 50 million steps between excessive productivity being completely idle and you expiring, right? That's true. Yeah. I would say 50 million, 60 million, give or take. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So how can we reframe this and make it a bit more gentle, right? Knowing that there are so many shades of gray in here, right? From you going to completely relevant to completely irrelevant and dying. Hmm. That's a great question. I was hoping that maybe you had the answer to that. (laughs) What do you really want? What do I really want? I want to help people while also not feeling like I have to sacrifice my own space for myself. Great. So let's put the not sacrifice my own space into a positive. What's the positive of that? positive of that. Well, we all have to toil, right? I mean, we all have to toil in our lives. We all must work, not all of us, but I do, right? A great majority of us. And I will say work has value in the world. I think if I didn't work, I would feel aimless and restless and like maybe more nihilistic. So if I'm going to have to toil, then I feel like what a privilege it is to be able to use the toiling positively to help people. And of course, you know, earn a living along the way. Okay. Great. So I help people and make a living. I help people and I can make a great living. Yes. Great. Now let's find evidence to suggest that that is true for you. But you can also do this in a moderated pace, actually. I want to introduce that into the reframe, right? Because we're going from the productivity, excessive working to a pace that's more sustainable. So can we, in the reframe, say something to the tune of, I help people and make a great living at a sustainable pace. That's great. I love that qualifier. Great. Now, here's the kicker. I want you to give me three examples of when that has been true in your life because your brain believes that you have to be excessively productive to stay relevant. We're flipping the script to say that I can help people and do it in a sustainable way and make great money, but we need evidence that it has already happened, that you have even small examples of this in your life so that we can create a new neural pathway and a new opening for your brain to have a different belief, a different thought, and then take different actions. Hmm. I think on a on a larger scale, that, and it's been repeated multiple times, is the position that I have within the bookkeeping agency is finding the right people to serve the right clients. And that is not a hard thing for me to do. I have made a job out of talking into this microphone, right? And a lot of what I do with the bookkeeping agency is also is talking. It's figuring out what people are struggling with when we get on an initial call and then going to my team, finding the right person, making sure that everybody's on the same page and, you know, finding a way to take away a pain point, provide a job and also, you know, make money on the on the way to doing all those things. Okay. Beautiful. So that was one example. Yes. So just like the work I do at the bookkeeping agency, I I synthesize that a little. (laughs) Can I get two more examples? Two more examples of me doing good, good in the world at a sustainable sustainable pace. Um, I would say, well, I just took four weeks off during December, which was, it feels obnoxious even saying that, but the book, you know, (laughs) The coach caught me there. Um, 
it just feels like a lot of time off every time I every time I tell somebody they're always like oh my god they're shocked and stunned that one would take that much time away from work so I feel self-conscious when people are that surprised I don't think it's that gnarly I mean when you look at other countries like Australians I see them all the time and I'm like what are you guys doing they're like just fucking off for six weeks you try, you try to email somebody in Europe in August, forget about it, right? No, you're not getting anything done. No, <laughs> exactly. the whole month. Yeah. The whole month. So I, I am, you know, I'm taking notes from those folks. And because I'm working for myself, I feel like even if it's really terrifying to, to see that we have momentum, but it's terrifying to say, oh, we're going to shut it down. We're going to go away. We're going to put on the out of office. It's, what am I doing it for? Like, why would I work for myself if I'm not going to take advantage of that, mm -hmm. right? So that's mm -hmm. part of the reason why I do it. But I feel self-conscious that other people, I feel self-conscious, I guess, in this society where it's like, if you're not killing yourself working, what the hell are you doing? I think that's what it is at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. I hear like a tiny bit of shame, right? Of like taking four weeks off while everybody else continues to toil. I'm going to put that in parentheses because I want to talk about that okay. after we finish this reframe, but there's something really good there too. Okay, cool. Okay. One so, more example. I, I mean, I think we need two because the, the that second, wasn't... the taking the four weeks off, like it, does that really connect to the, I help people and yeah, I guess if you want at a sustainable pace. Okay. <laughs> okay. I tell me if this works or not, but I am able to invest a portion of every dollar I earn, which, you know, that means one, I'm paying myself a living wage. And, you know, there's enough profit within the business to pay for my current needs, future needs, one. And two, that's like a, something that I'm, you know, amassing and building for future Paco. So future Paco can even work at an even more sustainable pace. So she can chill the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not even work. One day, the dream, if I can yeah. allow myself to believe it, we got to start there. Right. Okay. Beautiful. So the reframe is I help people and make a great living at a sustainable pace, just like the work that I do at the bookkeeping agency, just like being able to take four weeks off and just like being able to invest part of my income and every dollar I earn to support future Paco. So with this reframe, we want to spend time with it every day, right? Because the idea is to create a new neural pathway. So your brain, the old thought is that you have to work at an unsustainable pace, really sort of squeeze every last drop of productivity out of yourself to live well, right? But that's not working for you anymore. That's where the old groove is, the old neural pathway is. So to create the new neural pathway, we need repetition okay. and we need specific examples. So that's what we did here. We created specific examples and then through repetition, we create that new default. So it's like if you were used to driving home from work and every time you stopped at a light, you would make a right to go home and that would get you to your house. But then you moved and then every time you stop at the light, you now have to create, you now have to go left. So what would be default before of like, oh, I'm on autopilot, I'm making that right. At first you have to think about going left now because you've moved and eventually over time, because through repetition, it'll just be the default for you. Okay. So you'll spend time with this reframe every day, whether you sit with it after meditation or you just read it a couple times a day until it becomes the new default way. And oftentimes what happens is once we create this new belief, other old limiting beliefs will come up too. Of like, oh, here's the other reason I don't think that I can, hmm. you know, chill out or go at a sustainable pace. And so you just then take yourself through that same process of huh. reframing. Okay, great. I love this. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, my joy. <laughs> so I want to talk about the shame. Okay, I want let's to talk, talk about, about the shame. <laughs> yeah. So the shame came up around the four weeks of vacation and other people maybe not taking four weeks of vacation and being in that constant momentum and constant productivity mode. What's the story there? Hmm. I mostly feel like, I guess my bleeding heart in life is things are not fair for other people or if things are not fair for me, things are not fair in our world. And it just makes me feel badly that I have certain privileges, even if I worked hard for them or they were bestowed upon me through good fortune. I just feel badly that other people have to toil and work so hard and they don't get to take as much time away from work because it's very, it's necessary. I mean, as you know, I can come back here refreshed and excited and do good work. And I think it's it's really unfair that other people don't get to have that. Yeah, and that's real and true. It is unfair and life is unjust. And also like you making yourself smaller, you making yourself sick by overworking doesn't make the world more just. But you giving yourself time and space to go at your pace to do the work that you actually came here to do, I think does make the world more just because what you're teaching us from a finance perspective is so important. And there's not enough teachers that are sharing the message that you are sharing. And I think this goes back to economic justice too, right? I really love Kelly Deals' work on economic justice. And she talks about Basically, she says economic justice is when we each have enough to thrive. And there's sort of three qualifying criteria that it needs to be good for self, good for others, and good for good for the people we serve and good for the greater good. And so you're doing that work, right? But when we download all of the effort onto our individual shoulders and we don't make it a system-wide effort, that's when we take ourselves out. And so that guilt and shame can be downloading that onto our individual shoulders and us taking ourselves out. And that doesn't make the world more just. It just deprives us of your very important work and teachings. Damn, I really needed to hear that. Thank you so much. Oh, good. I'm glad. This is my soapbox <laughs> moment for today. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. 
That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. So, you've been dating an amazing, great-looking guy. You've been having the time of your life. But lately, things have been getting serious. Before you move in together, there's something crucial you need to talk about in your relationship. Something that can make or break your future together. Something that often goes overlooked. Your partner's financial situation. Money can be an awkward, touchy subject, but it's important to have an open and honest conversation about it with your partner. Knowing your partner's financial situation is crucial because financial problems can cause stress and strain on your relationship. Instead, by talking openly about money, you can build trust and strengthen your bond. Remember, the more you know about each other's finances, the better prepared you'll be to face any challenges together. Weird Finance Weird I like this idea of talking about shame and guilt as it relates to how one earns money. I would love to know, I mean, unless you have anything to add about everything going on between my ears, I'd like to ask you a question about your clients and and their relationship to earning money. Yeah, let's do it. I want to go where you want to go. Awesome. So I would like to know, I was poking around on your website and one of the things I read was a testimonial from somebody and it really stood out to me because they were talking about, of course, how how great working with you was. But one of the things at the end of the testimonial that they said was they stopped feeling guilty for earning money. And so my I have several questions about this. My first question is, how common of a feeling or of a, you know, of a bias do the folks that you work with have when it comes to this? I would say 50-50. I tend to work with a lot of spiritual folks and the guilt seems to be bigger there. If I'm remembering correctly, that testimonial comes from a spiritual teacher, um, a Buddhist meditation teacher, and they were of a lineage where they couldn't really set prices and they just had to kind of accept donations. And so then there was all this guilt and shame about setting their prices, establishing their worth, asking for a certain amount. And so we had to do a lot of work to kind of rewire that. That person also happened to be a historically excluded person. They were queer, they were a person of color. And so we had a conversation about how actually that's not just like 
you have been so oppressed. And so for you to work for less than minimum wage and and not get the money that you need to be able to do this work and to thrive, that's not justice. And that was a big part of the conversation there. Damn. So you answered my second question, which was like, where do you think this is coming from? And I could definitely say that I've definitely internalized this. Yeah, like the wage gap and being queer as well. I just felt like I'm just, I'm simply not as valuable as others, but that has been something I've worked on tremendously. So uh, thank you for, for helping folks work through that. My next question, and I think I might know the answer to it because we kind of walked through, you walked through the exercise with me, but what what is the process like when you're helping somebody to stop feeling guilty about earning money? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways that we approach it. So from a nervous system perspective and from a mindset perspective. So mindset, we look at the stories that we're telling ourselves about money. And I know you've had many beautiful guests on the podcast that have approached it this way too. So we all have stories about money that we learn from our lineage, that we learn from culture, that we learn from society. And so what are the ones that you've internalized and made your own? So I also had the story, like as a woman of color, like there is a wage gap and I'm just going to be on the receiving end of that, but that doesn't have to be my story, right? I adopted that belief as my own. So we want to take inventory and understand what the stories and belief systems are that are driving our relationship with money and what our caregivers relationship to money look like, what their stories were, what was the conversation in our family systems, in our households, et cetera. And then also from a nervous system perspective, because If our nervous system does not feel safe to earn, we will do everything to not earn. So I'll give you an example. Let's say we earn $80,000 and we want to get to $100,000. If we feel like that is such a stretch and we're not worthy of it, our bodies will throw up all these signals and send these signals to our brain to sabotage, to bring us back to the quote unquote comfort zone. We're comfortable at the 80K. It's what we know. 100K doesn't feel comfortable. Therefore, it feels quote unquote unsafe. And so we'll send all these signals to kind of take ourselves out. So from a nervous system perspective, we want to address it too. People refer to this as subconscious sabotage, but I actually think it's safety restoration where we're kind of restore our bodies to that place of safety so that we feel like, okay, I can move through the world this way. But there are specific somatic tools that we can use that allow our bodies to feel more safe around earning, around asking for a certain amount. What do those tools look like? So... They're basically mindfulness tools. All of our bodies have tells about when they're in a space of rest and digest and when they're in a space of fight or flight. I'll give you an example. So one of the things that a lot of people's bodies do is their shoulders will rotate backward when they're in a flight pattern. So they're literally, their shoulder is rotating backward as if to run out of a space or a room because they feel unsafe. So it's it's so interesting, right? The body is so wise and funny and wild and all the things. So simply noticing what's happening with our structure, and you can do something called mapping. There's a practitioner that I work with. Her name is Amy Bonaducci Gardner, and she teaches this mapping methodology, and it's really awesome. But it's simply paying attention to two points in your body and just bringing awareness to those two points. And after a certain amount of time, your structure will shift. So that shoulder that rotated backwards to flee will come back into position because you're more in rest and digest. And here's the thing. When we're in rest and digest, we can see more creative opportunities. So when we're in fight or flight, actually our vision narrows. So we lose the ability to see what's different in the room. And what that means from like a money perspective is we lose to see the creative opportunities to invest, to ask for more, to set a boundary, whatever it is. And so having our nervous system be in a particular place allows us to have a a more supportive relationship with money. 
Yeah, I love that. I had never heard of the shoulder thing. And now I'm going to try to see if there's instances where I'm like, I got to get the hell out of here. Even though I find that this happens with me a lot. Like I will have this grand idea of like, I'll stay at this really nice hotel or I'm going to go and eat to this really nice place, this nice museum, or I'm going to go to this really nice store. And I intellectually tell myself like, yeah, you deserve to be here. But when I get there, I feel so nervous. I'm like, ah, do you think they know that I shouldn't be in this place? Yeah. <laughs> and I bet your structure changes. Yeah. I, I give this one assignment to my clients where I'll say in a sales call, I want you to notice your structure before, during, and after. So when you're in rest and digest, what's happening with your structure? When you go into the sales call and you have to sell the thing and ask for money, what happens to your structure? What happens afterwards? And they'll be like, oh my, I didn't even realize that I was in this state. And from that state, we can't be effective. Yeah. Wow. I really love that you're bringing in such a holistic approach to helping people. I mean, it sounds like even set their pricing. That's important, right? Sometimes we need somebody outside of ourselves to say, does this math math? And is it going to be sustainable for your business? (laughs) Right. That is one of the biggest challenges, I think, when running a business is it's easy to have a, a grand idea. It's a little bit harder to execute. And it's even more harder to kind of make revisions or pivots and, you know, maybe even experiment outside of what the original idea was. Yeah. And that's what entrepreneurship is. It's really a journey of iteration and trying new things and seeing what works and what resonates and bouncing forward. So I have a larger question about work that I've been kind of thinking about a lot lately, especially as we're coming off of this holiday season full of rest and relaxation. You talk about burnout a lot in your work, you know, having been somebody who's experienced it. And a lot of your work is about, you know, helping people with their relationship to their their own work. Something I've really been thinking about is, do you think maybe that we might be putting too much stock in the role that work plays in our in our lives? Like, do you agree or or disagree? And if you agree with that, uh, what kind of advice do you have for folks who are looking to shrink the role that work has in their life? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I absolutely do think that we place way too much emphasis on work and real talk. Most of us have to have jobs. We don't have, we haven't won the lottery. We don't have trust funds. We don't have wealthy partners. Like we have to pay our bills, right? And as someone that has had a lot of medical bills, like I really understand and I'm with you. And so work becomes important, but then it tends to eclipse everything else in our lives. And then we put all of this emphasis and pressure on it, making it bigger than it is, right? And we want to live well-rounded whole lives. And so I always want to ask people of like, why are we holding work so tight? What's the story there? Because there's usually a big fear there, right? If I slow down in my work, if I don't give 150%, I'm going to get fired. I'm not going to get the client and I'll die. Kind of similar to the reframe that we did before, right? Sure. So what's the story that we're telling ourselves about the overworking, the overcommitment to work? And can we reframe that story? And then how can we crowd out the overworking or the the holding on so tight to work with other things that we love? And I think that play and creativity are so important. So can we make space for more play in our lives? And I think novelty has a huge role here from a nervous system perspective. Trying new things is really good for us. And so how can I crowd out some of the overworking, the holding on so tight to work with more play and more novelty? And maybe we start by choosing one thing for 15 minutes a week starting really small, and then we grow from there. I'm curious, what do you do for for play and to not have work be the absolute son of your universe? Yeah, I have a lot of kind of like, I really 
I have the privilege of being able to move my body. And so I, I, I like to be physical. I like to be in my body. So in the last year I got into powerlifting, Hell which yeah. is super fun. So I really love that. I really want to start jewelry design. That's something that is really calling me and feeling very warm. And for my birthday this year, somebody took me to trampoline school and that was so fun. And I would <laughs> love to do more of that. I love that. Okay. Another thing that you that you help your clients with is ethical wealth building. And I really like this topic because for me, what I recognize is obvi- a lot of times like the mechanisms for building wealth is what is fucked up, right? It's the fact that with the stock market, it is built on exploitation where we're extracting wealth from the workers and and trickling it up to the shareholders. And even with the way that a regular company is set up, right? The way that it is an inherently exploitive relationship, employer versus employee. But those are not, just because it's inherently exploitative doesn't mean that we should be conscientious uh, objectors. So I want to know a little bit about your philosophies and your ideas and what does it look like from a practical standpoint to to help your clients ethically build wealth? Yeah, For a long time, I have felt like work is exploitative. And I think since I had that initial sort of crash and burn in my late 20s, I've felt that way. Of course, I had my own role in it. But I think just structurally, it's like capitalism does not let a lot of people thrive. And at the height of the social justice uprisings in 2020, I also had the opportunity to work with a handful of VC-backed founders that had been canceled. And this was so interesting and sort of the gave me the framework that I'm using in my book. Because what I noticed is that these people were asked to grow at lightning fast speed. And so they were told to cut corners and to really instrumentalize their own minds and bodies and use that as a precedent for other people and expect them to do the same. And they took these, they had these big falls because of it. And so we were really kind of like pulling apart the conversation around ambition, which is what my book is about, because I think there's two types of ambition. There is ambition that's coming from a place of pain, and then there's ambition that's coming from a place of purpose. And when our ambition is coming from a place of pain, we'll do whatever it takes to win. We will step over people, we will exploit, we will harm, we will not care about our impact, all the things. But when we're in relationship to our ambition from a place of purpose, it can be really supportive of all people thriving. And so that's where I start the conversation with my clients of like, what does it look like to have a more purposeful relationship to ambition, even before we get to a business model or building a culture? Because if you aren't in right relationship with your ambition, it's going to come out sideways in some way, shape or form. And so we need to look at that first. And then how do we design businesses and cultures that really do make space for everybody to feel psychologically safe and to thrive. So whether that's like a co-op or we have a flat organization or, you know, we allow everybody to have ownership in the company, there's ways that we can design it, but really understanding our own internalized bias and our relationship to ambition, I think is the most important place to begin. I don't know if I answered your question. No, you you absolutely (laughs) answered my question. And I got to say, I am so appreciative that you're, that you're out here in the world doing the work that you're doing. I think it's going to take the way that I, I look at, you know, peers is we're kind of in the same class, right? Like we're uh, existing and putting out public work around the same time. And I just appreciate this, this narrative that you're pushing. I appreciate that you're asking people to confront the biases that they have within their own minds and how they look at the world, because just net, 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 ultimately, I think that's going to make the world a better place. I think we're so deeply and profoundly divided. I think people feel 
They feel uneasy about how uncertain the world is, the economy. Even if the numbers are, are showing that we have a great economy, people are worried. And we're so politically divided, I feel like I feel like it really starts and ends with the self. So I just needed to take a corny moment to, to say thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. That means the world to me. And obviously, you know that I'm a big fan over here since my sister turned me on to your work. So, so grateful that I get to be here with you and you consider me a peer and the work that you're doing is really transformative. Well, thank you so much. I want to touch a base on another particular topic, a, a term that you've coined called the passion tax. Mm-hmm. I want to know what the hell the passion tax is. How does it impact individuals who, who love what they do in a negative way? Yeah. So I don't think I coined that term. I think somebody else did, but I can't remember who. So the passion tax is a phenomenon by which those of us that are passionate about our work, if we feel like really aligned with our purpose and we love going to work every day, we love the thing that we do, we're more likely to be taxed for it. And we're taxed in the way that we are asked to do more of it. So inside of an organization, we may may see somebody that is doing beautiful work and is prolific. And then we're like, oh my gosh, I see that person with their contribution. I'm going to ask them to do twice as much because they're so passionate about it. And then we end up burning ourselves out. And so it is a bit of a tenuous situation, right? We want to be passionate. We want to really love the things that we're doing, but we have to be really boundaried in the way that we do it so that we don't get exploited in it. My friends and I joke about this all the time. It's like, you did a good job. Well, be careful because you're about to be rewarded with more work. More more work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Be careful how good of a job you do. And I also think passion is really interesting. I really love the conversation of purpose because passion can be fickle. Our mm-hmm. passions shift over our lifetime. And that's beautiful and perfect because we're evolutionary beings. And so sometimes anchoring our work to passion can feel fickle because it changes so often. I feel like purpose is a a bit more of a longer term conversation. Yeah, I think that's yeah way less of a fickle North Star because if you're not vibing it, it's still like, well, you know, I still got to put this out into the world if I really want to fulfill that purpose. Uh, before I hit you with some rapid fire personal finance questions, I would love it if you could talk to me about like what does sustainable success look like for you and, you know, go as holistic as you'd like here. Yeah, it's a beautiful question. I think it's different for every season of my life. A couple of years ago, I was really sick. I had toxic mold exposure and I had a brain injury as a result. And I noticed right off the bat, I could do dramatically less work. So sustainability at that time looked very different to sustainability now. And I've done a lot of work, particularly on my nervous system to expand my capacity because after that illness, I got, I became afraid to work with too many clients. I was worried that I was going to get sick again. And so I had to kind of really heal that wound. And so sustainability has really shifted from season to season. I think what's really important for me is that I am perpetually bringing forth the best that is within me in a way that really serves and supports other people and that I feel really nourished in the process. And if I'm doing that, I feel like I'm I'm checking the box. But I think it'll look different in terms of output depending on the season. I love that. How inspiring. Thank you for sharing your definition of sustainable success. All right, I'm going to hit you with these rapid fire questions. Let's go. So what's the one thing you've purchased in your life that has the biggest positive impact on your daily life? I mean, coaching. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Getting high on your own supply. It had changed my life legitimately. (laughs) It was the slap that I needed. Well, okay, I'll co-sign and say, yeah, it for sure. Coaching for sure changed my life. And I hobble together all sorts of weird programs, right? I'm not like a 
dogmatic about one particular person. I read a lot of different books and I implement a lot of things. And a lot of it is tinged with Buddhism and, you know, meditation and stuff and, you know, Western therapy. But yeah, you're right. It is probably up there on my list as well. So thanks for reminding me. What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? Don't stress. I spent so much time stressing and it didn't change any outcomes. There was legitimately no point to doing it, but I spent at least a decade being super high stress. So don't stress. Well, okay. It's all going to come I, out in the wash. Yeah, I know this is rapid fire, but here I am going to put the brakes in. I got to ask you then, like, what's the number one tool or tip or thing somebody can do if they're feeling stressed? Mindfulness-based practices are super important. Nervous system work, which I've talked a little bit about, but bringing ourselves into the present moment because so much of the time when I was stressing, especially in my 20s, is because I was future tripping or beating myself up from the past. And so if I'm in this moment, I recognize that I'm safe in this moment and my needs are met in this moment, what am I stressing about? Hell yeah. Cold shower for the present. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Curious if you had any financial superstitions growing up. So I'm half Arab and I, when I was doing this research for my book, I found that 90% of people in Arab countries believe in the evil eye. And I absolutely was one of those people growing up. And so I had this superstition and it was a a familial superstition that if you have super nice things, people are going to put their evil eye in you. So like, don't be, don't show people your nice things and like hide your nice things. And I had to do a lot of EMDR to rewire that. Wow. You don't just wear the medallion. I hear if you wear the thing, right? The evil eye. Am am I mixing up cultures here? No, no, no. (laughs) I mean, but like, there's also the belief that maybe that's not enough, you know, like you just, so there's some protection, but is it enough? Right. Wow. Okay. You really believed it. It sounds like. So wholeheartedly. (laughs) I actually, so when I was 18 years old, I was driving to school and I was shuffling Mariah Carey CDs. (laughs) I was a big Mariah Carey fan and I had a car accident. And my first thought was like, oh my God, the evil eye. Cause I just like, I just bought this car. Like everyone's evil eye is in the car. Not the Mariah Carey CDs. (laughs) I thought it was the evil eye. Mariah would never do us dirty like that. She would never. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Last one for you is, do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? Oh my gosh, so many, especially being an entrepreneur. Like I have lit my fair share of 10K on fire. Like you would not believe. I think it was an important thing for me to do in the beginning because you learn very quickly, okay, I actually need to see a return on all of my spends and investments. But I think especially like people pleaser me, codependent me in the beginning was like, oh, I should just give people more time and it's okay and be nice and all the things, but not anymore. You know, I know how hard I work for the dollar. And so Gotta see a return. I love that phrase. I'm gonna steal it. I've set I've set my fair share of 10k on fire. I really have. <laughs> <laughs> me too, Amina. Me too. All right. Mm. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure and an absolute joy. For the folks that want to follow you along online, where should they where should they go? Thank you for asking. You can go to my website, aminaaltai.com. The spelling will be in the show notes or on Instagram. My handle is at aminaaltai. And is there anything you wanted to push, anything you want to promote before we jump off of here? I think if anyone is interested in one-on-one coaching or my group program, you can find out more on my website or just message me directly. Amazing. Thank you so much for everything you've shared, for helping me work through my own damn psychology and for being a goddamn delight. Oh, this really was delightful. We have ended it the way that we began. Love it. Amen. Take care now. Too.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production, and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you to my friend, Jenna Parker, for lending your voice for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. That's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that. And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.